American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. said sometimes with the British film industry it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning let's find out welcome to another Britflix.com podcast my name is Stuart Wright and today's guest is Stuart Sweezy hello Stuart hey um it's now 24 hours since I first met you and you sat in my living room (laughs) Yeah, I feel very welcome here in in Leighton. Um, So we've, um, I came to see you talk about about, uh, mock books um, at the Horse Hospital, but the day before you were premiering uh, your uh, documentary Desolation Centre at the Dock and Roll Festival. um, We're going to talk about that, but before we do, do you want to give us a brief synopsis to what that documentary is all about? Yeah, so what... The film uh, covers is um, when I was in my early 20s uh, living in Los Angeles and I kind of uh, took on this uh, uh, idea of taking our local punk rock and sort of more experimental post-punk type music out of nightclubs and and out into the Mojave Desert. So we actually took people out. The first one was... uh, groups that people may or may not be familiar with from from that time, uh, Savage Republic and the Minutemen, and we took three school buses out about a three-hour drive into the Mojave Desert to a dry lake bed. And part of that was because I really just wanted to see what would happen if we took this music and and, and went into this other setting. The other part was we were really having... I was already like a small-scale local promoter, and we were having a lot of issues with our police department, with the LAPD at the time, and they were always shutting down events and sometimes it turned into full-scale riots and people were, were really badly beaten but thankfully in my case it was usually just more intimidation and like pulling the plug and whatever but um we were i was trying to think of a new way to get around those issues and um so that was the first one the second desert show uh came about um when i met uh the people from a german group that uh, called Einstürz and Neubauten. And uh, I met them in Berlin because I had traveled there f- uh, for, for a while after I, I left uh, L.A. And then uh, they pulled together some other people, uh, Survival Research Laboratories, Boyd Rice, uh, who, who did noise music. And so that became like, like a bigger scale uh, event. And so the, the film is really telling the story of um, these shows, uh, which uh, basically led into the, the first Sonic Youth uh, concert on the west coast of america which was out in the mojave desert um along with with other bands which i'm sure we'll get into like the meat yeah. puppets and red cross and and uh anyway so it's it's kind of the story of these events that i put on 
and also uh, sort of the coda is how it led to other things, which even I wasn't that aware of until uh, I started working on the film like Burning Man and Coachella and the Okay, well, we'll get to that because that, that was the interesting yeah. way that the, the, the sort of the story wraps itself up because for me watching it, it was like, it was like seeing all the, all the first fireworks get the blue touch paper lit on music that I ended up finding in the late 80s coming out of America. Um, it really, it, it was really weird to see how sort of how inauspicious the start was really in a way. <laughs> yeah. Although obviously events are not inauspicious at all. Yeah, no, nobody was paying attention to that there's a, music. There's a, bunch, Honestly, there's a bunch of you who know each other. Yeah, and, and that's how I could get away with, you know, hiring a, a whale watch boat and having the Minutemen and the Meat Puppets playing on it for, you know, say 300 people, because normally, you know, maybe 50 people would go see those bands. So it was kind of like, I knew that this was great music and it was as good as anything else that, that I knew of that was going on anywhere in the world, but it wasn't uh, really very popular or, you know, even in, in Southern California. Yeah. But one of the things that, that's, that, that feels sort of like we've, we've come a long way, but not in a good way is there's, there, there's a definite relationship between the performer and the, can, the, and the audience. And I say audience because I think now we're just viewed, we, we, we seem to be viewed much more like a consumer of something. Whereas I think the, the way the performers talk, they, they couldn't have done it without, without, the, uh, without the audience almost. It's like they, they seem to be saying there's a symbiotic relationship between them and, the, them and who they're playing for. Well, for me, uh, I mean, I, I guess, you know, growing up, there was the stadium rock thing, you know, there, there were these giant bands, um, you know, like Kiss that we were mm. talking about, or, or even, you know, worse bands like Sticks and people <laughs> like that. And, and so I always thought the whole idea of punk was to tear down that idea. You know, that's, that's the message I got coming mm. out of the Sex Pistols and people like that. And to, to really, you know, deflate the whole, you know, rock star thing and that anybody could be a rock star in a sense, you know? Um, and so I thought, well, pragmatically speaking, um, nightclubs with these elevated stages and, you know, bouncers and all that stuff, it still felt very rock and roll to me. Mm. Which, um, so I thought, well, you know, how can we change the situation so that it creates an even more, you know, kind of intense connection between the audience and, and the musicians. And so I think part of it was that was our scene. It was a small scale scene. And I think that, that there was a sort of very democratic idea. I mean, that's something that the Minutemen would always say at the end of their shows, start your own band, you know, and mm. people did, you know, and there's kind of like, we're doing it, you can do it, you know, but not everybody is going to have the same levels of talent and creativity and discipline, hard work and all that. But, you know, because I remember for, for that, for that, for the, for that part of the world, I remember getting after the fact, unfortunately, but um, Alternative Tentacles, Let Them Eat Jelly Beans, which has got the Black Flag tune, the first time I Black Flag, has got the police story on there. Oh, yeah. Which features in the film. And, right. And, and that film, that song had no context to me when I heard it. And I think for the first time, really, watching your film, I now get where the anger was for that, like literally get where that anger comes from. I mean, it's talked about in the film, you show footage of, of how rough the justice was from the police who thought, we don't want any of this. Yeah, I mean, it was really like um, the LAPD was, was, you know, it's a big city and they, they had big, big resources and SWAT teams and, you know, riot gear. And they were like venting all that on these kids that really just wanted to go see some music or just be able to have their band play at, a, a, you know, any kind of venue. 
but it, with Black Flag, it became almost like this grudge match, you know, where they 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 sort of singled them out because I think Black Flag had the most sort of momentum, and mm. they, and they were you know they were saying we're anarchists, we're you know we're called Black Flag, like you know basically fuck you to the authorities, and so I think that um, it just escalated, you know, like like there's uh, Chuck Dukowski in the film talks about these radio ads that they would make where they would just completely parody the the police chief and you know um just take the piss out of him and then you know so but, look, can i just just check on that so those those were being played out on they were advertisements yes and it was commercial radio yeah because no. <laughs> when i heard them on the film i kind of must have missed the beat or something because i was figuring oh they must have played these like put these on little recordings well and stuff, he, but... he says it and i was wondering whether someone you know outside of southern california would would know the reference but he said we played them on k-rock and that oh, was actually okay, a okay. kroq was a big radio station you know, but it was also the first station that played p- punk rock, in, mm. you know, which was in the early days would be maybe two hours out of the week. You yeah, know, yeah, there was yeah. a guy, Rodney Bingenheimer, who someone made a really good documentary about him called The Mayor of the Sunset Strip. But for us, that was kind of like the lifeline. But eventually they, they, they became very commercial. And a lot of times, you know, somebody that was big on K-Rock would then become a big MTV star and mm. things like that. So it was getting out there to the kids. Mm. No, <laughs> Definitely. Totally. Yeah. Now... A, a little a, one amazing sort of sequence is that is is how Sonic Youth end up playing in 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 your desert show is that you're you're traveling in Europe you're in Berlin you're going to you know loft bars and squats and whatever else right and you see Sonic Youth and you've got that access because you're American they're American yeah I mean it was a very it, you know again talking about the size and scale of these things I mean the club was probably the size of the room I mean here with mm. you um, and it was called the loft because it was the upstairs little loft of this bigger nightclub called the metropole and wow, but okay. that's where the cool bands would play and i'd seen einstrich and neubauten there i saw sonic youth and they were basically in europe for six months what i guess you would call a tour but it was really just sort of like going from city to city hand to mouth on the train <laughs> and getting a gig where they could i didn't, again i didn't understand all that when i first met them but in, since you know talking to them about it and you know um but yeah they, they played this show and it, it was in 83 and uh i i just was really impressed with what they were doing musically it was it was really i so different. wish i could be where you were when you, <laughs> when you just when you describe it as being i've never seen or never heard guitars and what people do with guitars like that it's like by the time i get i didn't i didn't really hear them till like late 80s by which point atonal guitar was was I guess kind of normal for a fair expression, but I guess yeah. to see someone do it. Yeah, I mean, it was also like they, they put together a tonal guitar, which could be a really arty thing. I don't know if you're familiar with like Glenn Bronca in mm, New York, yeah, yeah. you know, where he'd have a like, I, I don't know how many, you know, guys all playing, you know, one chord with different tunings and and stuff like that, which I think is great, and I, I saw him twice, but. Sonic Youth managed to combine that with hardcore and and punk and these other mm. sort of rock more rock uh, song structures and stuff like that. So the combination just blew me away. I was just like, wow. You know? Yeah, because I think I, I think it's the bit I completely missed. Because I was see, I think me getting into Sonic Youth was more like, here's my little deviation from whatever the norm is meant to be. Yeah. So I was only hearing the the stuff. I was hearing it for what it wasn't normal for, and I was fortunate enough to interview Kim Gordon. And she was basically saying, we just wanted to rock out and get on the radio. And I'm like, did you? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's how you did it. Well, the thing is that, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, they came out of this very, you know, kind of like 
ground zero New York scene of No Wave. Yeah, No Wave, know. which is like post post punk, isn't it? Right, yeah. and, and just just you know people really creating noise with their instruments, and then they got more and more interested in the American hardcore thing. So that that's what I think was that blend mm. of the two that really made Sonic Youth. And it's so it's interesting, special. and I don't know, it's obviously just coincidental, but all the people that, that you speak to about like the, the first visits to the desert. And I think even maybe even you said yourself, there's this idea of I live in California and I've never been to the desert. And yet yeah. it's a two hour, three hour drive away. And there's a little bit of self-discovery going on, isn't there? Like almost like I should have come here ages ago, really. Right. The right. Sound it, of people's voices. Yeah. I, I think a lot of us were, you know, urban people. And I mean, L.A. is basically a giant suburb, but still, mm. I mean, uh, and back then, you know, we were all growing up sort of on the outskirts of any urban parts of the city, I think most people. Um, but yeah, there's this beautiful otherworldly kind of uh, place where, you know, I think now people have started to appreciate it. I mean, Joshua Tree kind of has this whole mystique around it, you know, mm. and, and, and it's almost like a bohemian neighborhood of, of LA, you know, but, but back then, yeah, people just, I mean, I'm not saying nobody, but I think the punk rock kind of like creative art world type people just didn't really go out to the desert and didn't certainly weren't going to go camping, you know? Yeah, you know, no, I can, you can see, because obviously it's, it's it, you know, urban paranoia and anger is, is very much about the, you know, the concrete and clay, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas obviously going out to the desert is like, it's just open space and, and stuff. Right. But what, what was, so in the sense, those people that lived in and, and sort of moved there and spent lots of time there are sort of seeing it for the first time. And yet when Sonic Youth come, their first real experience of California is to go play a show in the desert. And they get that kind of baptism of desert as if, as like all part of the visit, so yeah. to speak. It felt... Yeah, I think that there was so many layers of that going on. I mean, like like they had that song, Death Valley 69, mm. which is obviously Death Valley is the most desert place in yeah, California. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Charles Manson was obviously the theme of what the song was about. Um, and so the setting seemed really appropriate to me. Also, you know, they kind of had this interest, I think, in like American pulp fiction authors and, and people like, you know, mm. the Jim Thompsons and people like that. So I mean, Kim I, Gordon went on and formed a band called Harry Cruz, didn't she? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think that there was an aspect of, of this Americana kind of like Route 66 sort of, uh, but a dark kind of like, like the movie Detour or something yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. that was, I was hearing in their music at that point in time. And, and um, so I, I think it was a super appropriate setting, but most people just thought, oh, well, they're from New York and they live in, you know, Manhattan and these lofts and, you know, what, and they hang out with artists and what the hell do they have to do with the desert, you know? <laughs> So. But like, like, like I say, for, for me, it was like seeing the, the, the birth of something that I, I sort of rode a wave of. But, um, but equally, you, the opportunity that you, you took hold of, and, and look, nobody was giving you, you, you really, you and all your peers took a hell of a gamble and made something fantastic. But it was never about, it was never about profit. I mean, I guess it was about not loss, but, yeah. but it wasn't about profit, was it? It was about the having the experience. Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the, the you know, seriously, I mean, that might sound strange to, you know, another generation of people or whatever, but we didn't really look at music <laughs> in any of its pursuits as, as a real money-making thing. I mean, we knew that there was a record business, but we were so far from it. You know, the people that I knew from being the age of, let's say 16 or whatever, was like Danger House Records. It put out the first X45, you know, mm. things like that. And you'd have like a, a stuffing party where you'd go, and I'm sure it was the same here in the UK yeah, yeah, when sure. it all started out, you know. 
and then people that put on gigs, you know, in warehouse spaces and things like that, you know, it was really just to give your friends a chance to play. Um, it wasn't, and to see them play, it wasn't really a, a money-making thing. So for me, it was just applying the same logic. Mm. How could I get people physically out to the desert? And so that's where the idea of renting the school buses mm. came from. And we just sort of broke down the pricing so that we, I always wanted to pay the musicians something because I just mm. didn't feel like it was fair to just say, oh, I'm doing this thing and, you know, not respect the fact that, you know, I think artists should get paid. Um, but really just, yeah, just, just to kind of have it all work out um, so that we could do this crazy happening. Mm. It wasn't like, oh, let's, let's make some money out of this. You know I mean? It just, it, that seems so far fetched, you know? Can you, can you, can you talk about your memories of that, that on the first one, there was a lot of people talking about the first truck stop on the way where basically they closed all the toilets on you. Were you, yeah. were you there when that was all happening? I, you know, I, I think I was probably just, um, I don't have any recollection of being at that truck stop. I heard all those stories from, from as I must've hmm. been heading out to the desert, um, separately. It feels, uh, feels like a punk rock version of, um, Bob Seger's sort of tour diary, you know, turn the page and it's like, you know, the, the long hairs arriving in the bar. So then obviously it's the blue and the green hairs this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's the thing that, um, you know, once you get a little bit out of LA, especially, you know, over 30 years ago, I mean, it, it was very redneck, you know, and, and to get out to the desert, you had to go through this kind of, um, area where, you know, people would kick your ass just for looking weird, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. but I think there were so many of us and, and, they looked so crazy that they, no fights actually broke out. It was just more of a stare down, kind of like well, these people came from another planet, you know, which is hilarious. But I didn't, I don't think I was around for that whole thing. Um, mm. It was this person uh, um, who who wrote about it um, afterward where, where I read the article, you know, where they, they titled it and it was in a zine. Um, you know, uh, Christine Critter did the illustrations. There's another guy that wrote the article, but um, it was they came on buses because that was kind of mm. the vibe of this whole yeah, truck yeah, yeah. stop thing. Yeah. So and there's, there's something really sort of like absurd and liberating at the same time of your choice of buses. And obviously iconically for, for Americans, even for Brits watching, that's a school bus you're using. It's not, yeah. it's not a commercial travel bus. Um, but you were basically taking in a sense and certainly the way people talk about it and plus probably the LSD, uh, People are literally outside themselves, aren't they? They they they're no longer like I can imagine if if the tensions were the police could raid this venue to so suddenly be go out to to a show where you're so far removed from that potential that you can just let yourself go. Yeah, and, and, and just to be clear on the LSD thing, I mean, I think some people were like, "We're going to the desert, we're going to trip," you know. But hmm. other people, especially like me in 1983, I, that wasn't part of my thing. I was still sort of let's go have a couple beers, you know, and see mm. the bands, you know, it, it was more about the freedom aspect of it, mm. you know? Um, and yeah, I think it was a huge combination of, of, of just letting the pressure go of, of what these gigs had become like where, where they were kind of, you know, either intimidation from police or, you know, a lot of like what is now called the mosh pit or whatever, a lot of violence, um, that was not always that well directed or smart or whatever. Mm. And then, um, also, just the open space, I, I think it just led to um, just a, sort of a different feeling about experiencing music. And, and for me, a, a lot of it was, you know, I think there's this idea of, of 
punk, but there was also a lot of sort of uh, more sort of transcendent things going on in the music that that I like, whether it was things like PIL here or, you know, people like mm. Savage Republic at home. And so I, I felt like, let's acknowledge that, you know, let's acknowledge this more spacey, trippy aspect mm. of it um, and, and, and go to the desert where it feels like you're on another planet. Yeah. Um, so... So you, you, you were saying earlier that when you were giving the introduction, you were talking about you didn't foresee the link between what you were doing and, and what, what you did, sorry, and what's now become of like that whole desert scene, Burning Man, Burning Man Coachella, obviously Lollapalooza came before those two. Um, so where what, what part of the journey of making the documentary did that become part of the, the sort of end of the tale for you? Right. So um, the... Uh... There's there's kind of a three part answer because Lollapalooza <laughs> and Coachella and Burning Man are different people. Of course, um, and so so that's the the way I kind of tried to present it in the film. I mean, Perry Farrell is somebody that was a friend. He was there from the beginning of doing these shows. His band wasn't really well known. This was before Jane's mm. Addiction. And I didn't know that band name at all. Yeah, Psycom. Um, but my friend Mariska, who was the co producer of the film, and her photos are in in the film. She was in the band with him. And so, you know, he was like a guy that, you know, she took buses, uh, sorry, took tickets for the bus. He was, yeah, you yeah. know, one of those people that was just helping out. And, um, so there, so I knew that. And I thought at the beginning, like I'll interview Perry and, you know, he'll talk about how that led to, to his other stuff, which was Lollapalooza and stuff. But I didn't know there was any connection to Burning Man whatsoever. Um, I just knew that, well, we were doing stuff in the desert and, and there was some, you know, things that seemed similar. And then there was a guy, before I'd really started the documentary, uh, somebody approached me from Vice magazine, uh, and it's this guy named Joey Bean Khan, and he was like, this is a great story. Uh, I just don't think they're going to run the article unless you can tie it into Burning Man somehow. You know, And I was like, I, I don't know, that seems like a stretch. <laughs> but you know, there's a guy named John Law, and I knew him from Amok Books, because right. he had done all kinds of crazy things in the Bay Area under the name of the Cacophony Society. I mean, obviously not just him, but you know, one of the, he was one of the main instigators. And I knew that he had somehow been involved in early Burning Man. I didn't really, never had sat down and talked to him about it. But I'm like, look, Joey, you're in Oakland. John Law is in Oakland, you know, Northern California. Ask him, see what he says. You know, here's his email address. So he got back to me, he goes, oh my God, I hit pay dirt. Like he totally credits Desolation Center for inspiring yeah, totally does, the yeah. idea of Burning Man going to the desert, even though he, he he says, look, I wasn't at any of those shows. And the and the, the connecting thread there was that he was a one of the people that was creating stuff and volunteering with Survival Research Laboratories, but mm. it was a couple years later. So he kind of heard about it from those guys and then after doing a couple of the the burns, I guess, you know, where they, they build the Wicker Man type yeah. character and burn it. it. It was always at the beach in San Francisco, this Baker Beach. And he so he was the one that said, look, if the cops were shutting that down. And he said, look, if the cops are going to shut it down next year, let me just take the, the man and we'll take him out to, you know, the Nevada desert and we'll do it there. And so it started, again, very small scale. And recently... Almost, but almost like the same. The same trigger is we, yeah. nobody's going to stop us, right? No, and, and that's even like part of the story that didn't really make it into the film. But it's like, yeah, it was the pressure of the cops, yeah, and it was this idea of just getting out of the city, and and so for him, you know, he just he took what 
he'd heard of, of Desolation Center and kind of made it into his own yeah. thing, you know, which, so, and then Coachella, there's another whole backstory there. Obviously Coachella is one of the biggest festivals in the world now, and it is out in the desert, but the guy who, whose company, uh, Golden Voice, puts on Coachella, um, Gary Tovar, was our main punk rock promoter in L.A. back then. And and so he was the only one that would have the balls to do a Black Flag show, you know. Okay. And um, so so he was always the one tangling with the cops and stuff. And what I, again, I kind of found this out working on the documentary. I didn't realize that he had actually been to the second desert show we did with Einstein and Neubauten because I knew that he brought them out you know, he had the budget and Specimen. I don't know if people remember who they are. They're sort of a Batcave goth band. Where okay, no, opening for Einstein and Neubauten, and um, but anyway, so that allowed me to say, oh, you know, like they're now in Southern California, we can take them out to the desert. And but I didn't realize he was on the bus with the rest of us out there, and so that was kind of like his first desert show experience. Amazing. Yeah, and Einstein Neubauten is like they're. They almost feel like too perfect in terms of a choice. You know, when you see the footage that you managed, like I was able yeah. to see the footage. I mean, I can't imagine what it must have been like there, but but seeing the footage of them play, it's like you could have given you could have given them anything. You could have said, Here's some space <laughs> and like, yeah, here you are, metal rocks. I mean, yeah, I forget the performance artist's name who's 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 who set the who set the ball rolling with explosions. Oh, that's Mark Pauline. That's Mark Survivor pa- Research Laboratories. That's who I was talking about that that the a lot of the people that ended up doing Burning Man all kind of were how, part of that. How interesting! How he mentions the incident with the with the steel cover that ends up flying across the air. Yeah, that he describes it as being that goes over the heads of people. Do you right. remember this? This that's another thing that I learned from doing the interviews. You know, here I was the promoter. I should have been aware <laughs> of this, or you know, not the only. But um, I only found that out interviewing him. You know fairly recently to do the, to do the film. And then I was like, wait a second. So you're saying that this, this 10, you know, 10 foot by 10 foot steel sheet went flying over people's heads. There's only 10 feet above them. And, and he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We just set off this charge and I didn't expect that to happen. I'm like, shit. And then I'm like, wait a second, is this true or not? So then I would start asking other people if they could remember it. And then that's why we put, we yeah. put Sean DeLear in there. Cause he, he confirmed it all. I'm like, wow, you knew that. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, and then we found some of this footage where you could see people looking up. I was like, "Whoa, there it is!" You know, flying over their heads. You know, it was it was an interesting sort of from. A, I mean, narrative makes it sound like I'm being distant from it, but it was interesting narrative choice in terms of the documentary to sort of before you get into the sort of legacy of what what we've just described. Now, you you tell us the sort of the end of the Minutemen is a is as as part of a a through story that, that's along with Desolation Center. Was that, was that something that was born out of the, uh, uh, what was there from the start as part, as part of what you were going to do? Or did that, how was that, how did that feature? As... You know, I have to, I have to say, sometimes, you know, uh, when you really look at your motivations and things like that, and, mm. and you really think about it, you learn things that maybe I wouldn't have said before I, I started the film. I don't think I would have said, uh, yeah, D. Boone dying in a car crash is why I stopped putting on shows. Mm. But looking back on it, I mean, it literally happened that night. The last night that I promoted a concert was with the Swans and Sonic Youth at Sacred Trust in this um, big warehouse. And um, that was also the night that D. Boone died in a car crash on his way to Arizona. 
And um, the person that really brought that out was Jack Sargent, who, you know, we, who, who basically was uh, responsible for me coming here to London and, and we've been hanging out, you know, for the last couple of days. Yeah. Um, he's a writer and a good friend. And, and he, we were just talking about it. He goes, you know, that's an important beat in your story. You know, you, you can't no, just ignore that. that. And, and so I, I thought maybe it would be a little too like self-aggrandizing or something like that, but it, it really is true that for a lot of us, it just, it just shook us up. And I th- sort of just took it as a sign of, I mean, not necessarily in a good way, but like, Okay, this time, this wonderful idealistic time that we've been living in is kind of over, you know. But but I think you know it 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 was. I thought it was like a, it was a real mark of respect. I didn't feel like it was just sort of oh look here was a sign in our road. I thought yeah because they feature so heavily as part of the story anyway. Right. It would have been churlish not to make an important point because yeah in a way you kind of you kind of feel like it, it's a little moment for the film to go what could have been for these people, not just the fact that he, you know, it was a, a, a tragic thing in, 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 in of itself. You know, here, was, here were people that being celebrated for what they were able to do and, and judging by the way, I didn't know the full background of the band and judging by their, their kind of their beginnings, yeah. they were so out, out of whack with everything else that's gone on <laughs> around them. The fact they come out with it, you know, in a way, you know, we meant, we talked about the fall earlier, yeah. you know, they weren't doing what everyone else was doing. Right. Which is what I thought it was all supposed to be about. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I thought that's what punk was, was mm. not doing what everybody else was doing. But mm. we, there was definitely. So, yes, to, so much respect for 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 the Minuteman and D Boone. And I, I don't know that I ever would have even started putting on shows had I not met those guys. Mm. You know what I mean? I don't know that any of this would have happened because I was the first person to interview the Minutemen. It was for this cassette zine called Nonplus. And, you know, by interviewing them, we, you know, we started to get to know each other. And then I started putting on shows with them. And so that was all before the first mm. Desert Show, which was with the Minutemen and Savage Republic, you know. And, and, and that's because they were always up for anything, you know. They were so down to earth and mm. committed to what they're doing. And, yeah, so I, I remember in the, in the era of uh, when I was trying to get them to do an interview, they wouldn't do interviews. That was like part of their thing and they said that interviews of course were, it would be yeah interviews were bourgeois you know <laughs> and then and then i somehow i talked him into it and then looking back and then we decided that not doing interviews was bourgeois <laughs> <laughs> but well, anyway so it was it was just you know the spirit of certain people that you just keeps you mm. going you know and when d boone was gone it was, it was a lot harder you know and 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 in a sense it's hard not to miss that from from everyone involved there is a all the artists, the people following it, the various other pursuits that you know, the, the the performance artists, there is a want to do something, and it's not a want. It isn't just about. It's about them. It's a compu- There seems to be that compulsion that drives people, not just the I fancy doing something a bit on the edge. <laughs> you know, it's not like a, a lifestyle choice. It is just I'm compelled to do this, and it comes across really loud and clear. Well, that's really cool because I mean I think that's the bigger, if I was to say, message uh, of the film is it, not so much we did this and mm. this is interesting because it led to that. It's more like here's a way to approach creativity and here's a way to kind of approach you know music and I mean I don't know if art is the right word because it's such a loaded word, but I mean in a way to for people to express themselves and it, well, it worked for us. Happening is an art, is art, isn't it? Everything, yeah. all the people there and the reason you're there together is the art it isn't like what's on stage is the art and what's not on stage is not part of it well i me. think that's the that's that's kind of the the vision of, of what i thought was possible you yeah. know and and not to say that it, it other happenings you know 
like the merry pranksters and things like that i knew from reading about yeah. them and you know there's obviously things that have been predecessors to, to whatever you do but yeah i just thought like why do we need all this sort of uh stratified you know commodified things even back then that were going on how can we get rid of these barriers between audience and also give people kind of a an adventure, an experience, you know, put them on this bus. Don't tell them where they're going. Don't mm. tell them how long they're going to be in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it changes the vibe of the whole thing. You know? I mean, remind it. I mean, it's, it's, this isn't is cult, isn't to compare it on a cultural level, um, but it reminded me of stuff that I've been to since I've been in London, where there's a there's a little festival called Tapestry, well, an event called Tapestry used to happen in a in an old sort of um, social club, and they used to do a thing called Tapestry Goes West. And they would. They, it was. It was buses out of London. Oh wow! Going to Cornwall, and weirdly, they were going to a fake western town. So somebody built like a wild west town in Cornwall. That's hilarious. Like a film set. Yeah. And right. that was the location for the festival. Wow! You camped in the grounds, and little stages just for like you know for fifty to hundred people to watch yeah. were in different locations around the town, and you went and watched bands. Now you you weren't there to see Kiss, obviously. Right. But. People would turn up in uh, bands, turned up in tanks, and you know, and wow. and double decker buses, and yeah. all kind, all big like big. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, all that that kind of spirit is, you know, it, it is what kind of links any of these things is is you know how music and performance can can transform. Nobody a in a setting, high, nobody in a high, nobody in a high visibility jacket. <laughs> That's usually the best sign of fun. Yeah, because I think the week before I'd I'd been with my band and we'd been at Download. And you've been herded like cattle. Like there was points at the event. I'm at, I'm, I'm at an event that's meant to be a public event. Right. And you're being told you can't move until we let you. And you're like, is that really the spirit of rock and roll? Stay there 15 minutes while we do something? <laughs> yeah. No, I've never been able to... I've never been able to reconcile that whole thing. You know, to me, it's like, that's not freedom. Like what, you know... I mean, I was there like, you know, working. But if you yeah. had paid £150 for a ticket, I'm stood around with people who've paid for that privilege. You think... Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I kind of like, you know, grew up in, in the era where you could go to a Chinese restaurant, you know, like the Hong Kong Cafe in Chinatown in L.A. and you'd see somebody like the Germs play, you know mm. what I mean? And when you <laughs> when that's your first sort of experiences of going out to see bands, it's hard to, you know, kind of make peace. And some people don't mind, you know, they don't mind going to some big venue with the wristbands and all that. But mm. I always felt like that was sort of like. And it's quite scary. I mean, in, in your documentary, you show that contrast beautifully. Those those still images of uh, Coachella and, and Burning Man and stuff. Yeah. They're basically, that's like a shopping mall in comparison. If you think about what you, your Desolation Center was doing and what they right. you know, they're, they're kind of amazing. I mean, look, it's an amazing feat. And to get that many people to go to the desert as a, as a venture is amazing, but uh, maybe not for me. Um, you've, you've already, you've sort of mentioned a few times about things that came up through the process of making it. And I guess there's a... Um, I guess there's a, there's a version of the story you were gonna make mm -hmm. when you start off. You go, I'm gonna make a documentary. We're gonna make a documentary about that, that's folk that what emanated out of Desolation Center. But what for you? What was your favorite discovery that you kind of either didn't know about or had completely forgotten in terms of what what impact or or, or what was interesting about Desolation Center for you? Um, I yeah, I I think that. Um... In a sense, what you brought up about Mark Pauline and, mm. and the uh, you know the, the the metal flying over the audience and just the um, the how much these uh, things really became borderline out of control, but still never really no one got hurt. You mm. know, um, and I think it was just that 
when I when I really looked back on it and realized how chaotic and 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 yet at the same time controlled that they were, you know, I sort of was startled myself and like, wow, we did that. <laughs> you know, that's like Janet Hausman says in the mm. in the film, but it's true. It was just kind of like um so I guess uh the yeah, the the sort of the extra musical aspects of it to me were mm. were kind of I knew they were there, but um I didn't really realize these stories like, you know, um Red Cross getting lost in the desert on the way to the gig. Like I had a whole different version of that. So there's a lot there's been sort of a Rashomon aspect to the whole thing that's been interesting for me. I love the idea in my head now, I've been seeing that that sort of story be told that I I'd like the idea that somebody's still driving around those desert roads who's never who never quite made it anywhere and it's just set up in a shack somewhere because yeah. they just got lost on the way to Desolation Center. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean there there were there were so many sort of rumors swirling around that like that that it was all just cuz Red Cross wanted a headline and they were hiding out in the desert and somebody had said that they'd flown into a heliport outside of Las Vegas and driven in from there. So I, when I finally got the actual story you know, uh, that, that they had this, this girl driving them around with this, you know, the anarchy mobile with the spray hmm. A's on them. And they had no idea where they were going. It, it, it was, I was like, wow, this is even better than anything. I love, I by thought. the way, I love the punchline to that story, which is almost like, and I had sweatpants on and I had to go and play a gig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, that's the, that's the thought that enters your head when you've literally thought you might never get there. Right. And <laughs> um, in terms of process of making it, what, for, what for you were, were the sort of, Biggest because you know there's a lot of archive footage, there's a lot of new footage in there. There's mixed media. Um, you've got people from different walks of life. You've got like um, Sam Reynolds, music journalist. You've got artists, you know, and, and people that were obviously around the scene. So I'm guessing you've lost touch and you're in touch with people at different yeah. measures. So what for you was was the sort of biggest challenge um, pu pulling it together in the in the production phase? Well, I think um, you know it started out like this is attainable i you know most of these people are in southern california I, I can start doing these interviews um and uh then we went up to northern california you know but going to getting blixa bargeld involved and some of the other people that used to be in i sure know about and um mark chung and and uh fm einheit i mean that was that that's when it kind of took on a bigger scale mm. of like okay now we're going to this other country and we're going to be doing interviews and stuff like that so on a production level that was, uh, and I was really lucky, fortunate that a, a guy, Klaus Meck, who's a pretty well-known uh, German director and producer, but he, he was at one point kind of basically Nightshirt Snowbound's manager, and I've been friends with him for many years, and so he said, all right, look, I'll, you know, if you can just get me from Hamburg to Berlin, I'll, I'll take care of a lot of this stuff. And so that, that made that a lot easier for me. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think um, it was the... Yeah, just the, the getting all the people that I wanted to be in the film to be in the film. And, you know, uh, a lot of the other things are um, more on the technical level of, like, getting the the music, which came from one source, and the video that came from another source, uh, okay. to get to digitally to sync up so that it actually looks and sounds as good as possible. Yeah. You know, um, and then learning more about color correction and, you know, so, that, so this this sort of bad 80s video actually was enhanced enough to be able to show it on a movie screen you know there's a lot of things that i didn't know how were going to happen when we started it and i 
been really, uh, I think just because of the, the nature of the project, you know, it, it speaks to people that love music and like, mm. um, want to get involved. Uh, and so the, there was some pretty high level people in terms of graphics and color correction and audio mixing and all that stuff that I was able to kind of get to help me out along yeah. the way. And that's, and, and sort of how, so, so what does, where can and I editing see? too, by the way, Tyler hubby, who's been an amazing person to sort of collaborate with. So where, where can I, where can I see that expertise the most? I suppose, can you pick a sort of a, a bit, a bit, a bit of footage that where you've, that expertise has really paid off? Well, I, I would say some of it would be, um, you know, actually watching Sonic youth play, which is pretty straight. It's mm. just, um, this it's the flip side video, um, is really, I think brought out so that, you, you know, it, you, you can really see, What's going on? I would say in terms of the graphics, I mean, one of my favorite moments is, is when the Meat Puppets are playing and all we had... Well, what happens in, in the actual concert is that um, uh, Kurt Kirkwood says, turn the lights out, turn the lights out. I'm like, why does he want the lights out? You know, I didn't even, at the time, I didn't get it. But then this other friend of mine actually is the one who turned out the lights, which I found out later. Um, and so now, but because the reason was it was the full moon, which was brilliant. I mean, it made yeah. it even more enhanced and, and their music at that time was very psychedelic. Um, and so that was great, but it was not good for videotaping. You know what I mean? So all of a sudden, you got, you <laughs> no footage. I had the audio um, and I'm like, what are we going to do with this? You know, so we had this idea of showing a little bit of black, you know, video sort of like leader, but I'm like, I'm, I'm not happy with this. And then I, 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 thought we could maybe animate it or, you know, like, and then what we ended up doing, I think with, with, with the graphics was just taking the stills, but then kind of using After Effects and making it into this sort of trippy thing. Mm. But I think we did it in a way that didn't feel like, you know, um, 60s kind of yellow submarine psychedelic, you know, I mean, I, I think it felt true mm. to the spirit of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know? yeah, you've got, and also you've got the people talking about what they did or did not see. So it's yeah. almost like it's almost like you're going. Was it that? Doesn't matter. It's like that's they've imagined something. You're right. showing us something. There's another guy that that uh, was that I interviewed, and again, some of these things didn't end up in 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 the final cut of the film. But he is pretty convinced there was UFOs overhead at that last show with with Sonic Youth and the Meat Puppets and and Red Cross, and that they were kind of just there to tell us this is good and everything's cool, like you guys are doing the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> 500 people on black acid, yeah. There was UFOs. <laughs> what a coincidence. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, now, one person, there's a British guy, I think he's, I think I wrote it, John Tottenham, is that yes. his name? Failed visionary. What's a failed visionary when it's at home, Stuart? <laughs> wait, wait, what's the question about John? Or... You, you, it, on the credit, it named him as John Tottenham, well, but then it said he was a failed visionary. Right. And I just wondered. So he, he's actually, uh, John is a, he's an artist and a, writer I, I at in my other role as a muck books uh i, I published his last book mm. of of poems called the hate poems and he's somebody that he's he's british but he's been in la i've probably known him since about the time when we were doing those shows 82 83 um and basically i just wanted to interview him because i knew he was there and and you know he he actually drove out with with chuck dukowski from black flag and um I just let people pick their own lower third, but we call them lower thirds in TV, mm. the, the, okay. the captions. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, so I said, John, what do you want to be called? And he goes, oh, failed visionary. I'm like, oh, fuck. That's, <laughs> that's a, that was genius. And then another one was Lisa Derrick, who um, is, she actually runs a gallery now in LA. She's done a lot of different writing and art curating. I was like, Lisa, you know, what do you want yours to be? 
And she goes, oh, sorceress. So I just let people go with yeah, it. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I figured I'm not going to be able to do better than them, you know. So. True, true. Um, and I was also fascinated that you you give yourself a sort of, well, I guess it is a manifesto at the beginning of uh, Desolation Center. Was it almost like, it's almost like the, 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 the manifesto comes and then you're like, we, we now have to build it. You know, you, you asked me, like, what were the, some of the things that you learned or relearned in the course of making yeah. the film? And that manifesto was something I had completely forgotten about. No you know, way you forgot yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I knew that we did it, like, but I didn't have a copy of the flyer that it was on the back of, you right. know, the yeah, yeah, yeah. flyer. And my friend Joy, who's, who's in the film, that, you know, talks about getting, you know, basically kind of like getting with this person that, that she's still married to to this day. But anyway, she's like, Stuart, you remember writing that, that crazy manifesto thing? Look, I have it, you know? And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And it was very kind of uh, a little bit um, like getting back in touch with this person that you were at that time. And I was like, well, that was pretty, actually very thoughtful, you know? There was a mm. lot more going on there than I would have given myself credit for at that age, you know? Um, and, and so it was kind of a, a, a nice affirmation that there was sort of a plan even if i didn't know what it was i mean when i did that flyer we were still putting on shows around you know little warehouse spaces and stuff but this vision of sort of you know tearing down the whole kind of rock and roll machinery by doing these shows was was obviously there yeah now i can't remember, i can't remember who said it but i wrote it down 20 year, 20 year olds are all sociopaths yes um but i think you you basically your, your events were essentially apart from the authorities were fairly uneventful in terms of a group of sociopaths hanging around. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it was such a good line when Janet said it, and she, you know, um, I just couldn't resist using it. Um, but I think that um, it is more just the idea that we, yeah, I don't think we were sociopaths. I think it's more so like we much. want it. We want it now, isn't it? It's like give it. We also, want it like, yeah, I was going to say like, um, not really thinking about the implications of what you're doing. Like, you know, you, there is this idea that, you know, young people think they're immortal. And I didn't really worry about, you know, whether someone was going to get drunk and fall off this whale watch boat or whether the explosions were going to hit people. Hmm. It's more like the risk taking. I think it's, I think it's sort of proven, you know, um, neurologically or whatever that you just, you just a much more high risk person when you're that yeah, age yeah, yeah, than, yeah, yeah, than yeah. when you're younger or when you're so, older. So, I mean, the reason the point I mean, to draw attention to is, is like, what what do you, I mean? It's not so much that 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 you or I as like Father Time can go. Hey, young people, do this. <laughs> but but in in a sense though, what what looking around the state the state of popular culture now, what do you think you could take if you're 21 now watching that documentary? Is there space in the world now to take inspiration from it? Do you well, think? I certainly hope so. And you know, I think um, sometimes we've played in places, uh, film festivals, um, where we do get people in, in their twenties that come out and see it. And, you know, I always like to talk to people after the screenings. And I think even though they're not the majority of the audience, the ones that come are very committed. And I think that they are getting this message of like, yeah, you can do this. Mm. Not necessarily don't do exactly what we did because yeah, that yeah. would be not the point, but that you can kind of use the existing, whatever musical genres and, and social media and technology and taking bits and pieces of, of it and do cool events. And I, I do think that, that, um, that is their takeaway. And I think it is a bit of a wake up call of like, yeah, so we don't have to go to these big corporate sponsored events and yeah. And I think if, when it is streaming and it's more available, 
uh, and it reaches more people. I think that that message will hopefully continue to to get across. I mean, there was one person who came to one of our uh, screenings in, in the LA area who was from the Bay Area, and this is just a very short anecdote. But she, you know, she's she was in her twenties, and and she was like, yeah, you know, I grew up in in the Bay Area, and the two weeks of Burning Man is our favorite two weeks of the year because that's when all those people are out of town. <laughs> And they're gone. <laughs> and we hate those people. And I was like, yeah. But anyway, so she, she basically was like, yeah, we'd like to do our own events that, you know, would be for our generation, which is what I would support. You know? I can't remember which, which, which band member it was, but one of Isaac Barton was saying something like, um, and this is what my favorite, my, all my favorite things I've ever been to is where my expectations have been zero go into it. And then, or, or I've just, I've, I've been like, let's find out rather than, I'm going to see Kiss, therefore Kiss does this thing. Yeah. And if they don't do this thing, if they don't play I Want to Rock All Night, then I'm then they didn't have a show as far as I'm concerned, kind of decision-making, which loads the event with all kinds of weirdness about, about what it's meant to be, whereas I, it really stuck a chord with me. Like that I'd, I mean, only, only last Saturday I was out with my wife, we're walking back from a bar and there's a live band on in a kind of tip jar place where you don't pay a ticket entrance. And we walked in and we watched them. Woman in her fifties on the drums, and it was fantastic. And yet, we didn't go out that night to to see an Australian Americana band, you know. Yeah. But because the expectation wasn't there, the the the, the enjoyment was all about the moment. Right. And I think that was something that comes across strongly with. There was a few interviews with people who were on the way to the event. I think yeah. it was the second one. And basically, they were just like saying, "Yeah, we're just what well, well, we're going to find out. We're going right. to this is it. We'd have got no idea." Yeah, and I don't think anybody could have really been prepared for it. There's no doubt at that moment, or you know, just because who was playing power tools and you know pounding on on metal with rocks? I mean, it's just that was so kind of yeah, I'm, 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 uh, yeah, unusual I'm thinking, at the time. <laughs> Road leveling equipment for percussion, and you know. Pre, pre-internet days where you couldn't just Google and look at YouTube clip and go, oh, right, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, and I do think there's something that hopefully we you know, kind of were able to capture with the sound mix, but a lot of times records then didn't really convey what the live experience was, and, and I think that um, there were things going on sonically with some of these groups that were very different than you know what maybe you would have heard if you just had the vinyl or whatever. So Without a doubt, yeah. I mean, that's one thing that comes across really strong is that the real force of nature of all the bands you feature is, is that the live experience is where the band happens. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I mean, to, to get back to uh, Simon Reynolds or whatever, but that was sort of a, maybe a difference between some things that were going on as what, what post-punk was in the UK, which became more of a studio thing, mm. whereas a lot of the, the US groups were, you know, touring with Black Flag, the Meat Puppets, played and played and played same with the Minutemen, you know and and they they were kind of forced to become very good at doing what they did live you know so um i ask i always ask people about the, about the process of making so what what advice would you give to people who are who are making documentaries in terms of because in terms of deciding on stories like when when's it when's it when is when did when's there enough footage and how do you make that decision yeah I mean, um, I do think having, if you are going to be telling a story uh, that's not, you know, going on in the present where you could shoot it all, that you know, you need to know you have footage. Um, and I think uh, some people just are okay with people telling the story, but you know, um, I think that 
the audience really wants to be able to see something mm. that, they, that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. And um, I guess if there's a like if there is that bank of really cool footage, then you can you can make it work. Um, and and, it, and that was sort of a, a, a pivotal point for me was when I realized that like even though I didn't have any of the footage, um, I knew I, all the people that were out there that did, and when they were all willing to sort of cooperate and let me use that footage, then I'm like, okay, now we got now we got a movie. Um, How much did you have to wade through then to to find what you need? Uh, we didn't really wait. I mean, it was more or less like maybe, uh, I guess, a couple hours of footage. I mean, it wasn't so much material, really. It was more just finding the people, getting people to allow you to digitize it, getting people to pull things out mm. of storage. And, you know, you, uh, it was you. more just... Um, it's all analog stuff, and you know, so you have to like actually get your hands on it and digitize mm. it and that kind of thing. Now I'm talking to you just a couple of days after Doc and Roll Fest screening. Um, you've had a you've had a fairly extensive festival run to date with with the film. Um, so what's next for Desolation Center? Well, I think um, yeah, we we did a uh, a theatrical release, sort of a, a DIY on our own in the U in North America, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of winding down. Um, and then Doc and Roll came up sort of in the middle of all that. Um, and so I think the next phase will be to actually make some kind of a digital release, to put out a DVD, make it available, you know, outside of just the film festival and theatrical mm. setting. And that'll be happening next year. And we'll put some DVD extras and things like that, that, you know, cool stuff that didn't make it into the film. And I still love the idea of, showing it to, to an audience. So I'm hoping that we can kind of combine those, you know, and we did one outdoor screening um, with Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth playing live. There's a, there's a group called Rooftop Films that put on these sort of events all around New York. Um, and they put on an amazing thing where it was in this, this historic cemetery in Brooklyn. And then we had this crane where, um, you know, they would use just to lift up and down the, the coffins, but we put Lee Ronaldo's guitar on it. So he was swinging it around and creating all this kind of like noisy feedback, but it, it, was, it was very transcendent, like these spirits were being evoked or whatever. So it was, it was like bigger than the sum of the parts. So mm. I'd like to do things like that where we have site-specific screenings with music, you know, keep, keep that part of it going. Well, look, absolutely fantastic documentary. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Well, thanks so much. It's, I mean, I, I love talking about it. And, and, you know, it's great to be on your show. And I'm glad that you found it while you were here, or while I was here. Yeah. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning.